Hi guys, welcome back to your final episode of Alaska. Now, before we get into it, I just want to apologize for the long hiatus. There has been a slew of obstacles in my way that have been completely unavoidable, but alas, I apologize from the bottom of my heart for taking so long. But now that everything is much calmer, I'll be able to go back to putting out a weekly podcast. So I will look forward to filling your ear holes with my voice. Now, on to our last Alaska case before we move on to Arizona. This week's case will be on Doug Cleaves. He is what I call the unluckiest man in Alaska. He was a 25-year-old Anchorage, Alaska resident who was originally from White House Station, New Jersey. Now, White House Station is a tiny town, and I'm talking like it's only 1.346 square miles. He was one of four children. He had two older brothers and an Irish twin sister. Now, for those of you that don't know what an Irish twin is, it's not actual twin. It is someone who is two children that are born very close to each other. These two were only, I want to say, like, 10 months apart, if I remember correctly. I could be wrong, so don't quote me on that. But he was super close to his Irish twin, Susan, who her now last name is Ludlow. They were very, very close. I know I did try to find Susan to bring her in for an interview, and you would not believe the amount of Susan Ludwigs there is. It's crazy. So trying to find the right one was just insanely difficult. And so I kind of jumped ship on that one. Now, being as Susan and Doug were so close, they kind of supported each other through their parents' divorce, which was pretty awful and ugly. Now, this case has been unsolved since 1985, and there's currently no leads. He was tragically killed October 19th, 1985. A little backstory on who Doug was as a person. So you kind of get the feel for why I say he's the unluckiest guy because he really was a kind of fascinating person in my opinion. He had a best friend named Ray. Now, Doug was the kind of person that he got along with everyone. There wasn't a person he couldn't talk to. And his friend Ray, who he had been friends with since middle school, stated that Doug could talk and talk and talk. Now, we all know people like this, and sometimes it gets on your nerves, but it's an endearing quality, in my opinion, that it's... I wish it was we could find more of. Maybe there wouldn't be such a disconnect. Now, it didn't matter who the person was, their color, their background, nothing. It didn't matter. He could always find a way to connect with someone like they were old buddies that hadn't seen each other in some time. Now, he was a very respectful person, especially to his elders. 
But being as he had such an admiration of sorts for the army here, Doug was all about the army. He would talk nonstop about it and how he wanted to go to Alaska. Patriotism ran through this guy's veins like coffee runs through mine. He was a gun enthusiast and loved everything outdoorsy. Now, Ray's father, who was a World War II vet and didn't like anyone, connected with Doug. He was kind of like his adopted son in a way. Now, and Doug is a man after my own heart. He loved what was called rot gut coffee. Basically, the stuff that'll put hair on your ass that's been on a burner and a truck stop for, you know, three or four hours. That stuff will wake you up in a heartbeat. But it will rot your gut. Now, he always loved coffee over anything else. You could hand, you know, if you gave him the choice between a Mountain Dew and a Coke and coffee, he's going for the coffee every time. He was also a big Marlboro smoker. Now, when I smoked, I smoked Marlboros too. So I think I would have got along with Doug just fine. Now, Doug wasn't much interested in school. He very much became disinterested in his senior year. And this is where his journey kind of begins. And when I say his journey kind of begins, and this is the beginning of the end, so to speak. At this point in his senior year, he dropped out of high school and took off for Alaska, where he went on, earned his GED, and started his lifelong dream of being in the Army. He wound up being in the Army National Guard from 1977 to 1980. He was a paratrooper and an artilleryman, which is pretty freaking impressive. Now, he was honorably discharged after four years and had earned a good conduct medal. Doug kind of strikes me as the type to go after what he wants no matter what stands in his way. He seems like he was a very ambitious guy. Now, like most military people are drinkers. You know, I grew up around the Navy. Let me tell you, so they can drink. But not Doug. He was a pothead, and that was well known by everyone. And on a trip home, Ray was picking up Doug from the airport. Doug had managed to smuggle a, and I quote, big ass bag of pot for him under his hat the entire time traveling from Alaska to New Jersey. Basically just put it under his hat and kept it there and didn't ever take his hat off which is kind of funny. Try to do that now and that would never work. Now, on a side note, back then, cultivating marijuana for personal use was not illegal in Alaska, so you could grow all you wanted for your personal use as long as you weren't selling it. Didn't matter. Obviously, the military, that was not the case. You still could not smoke marijuana and be in the military. Obviously, he did not get drug tested the whole time. Now, getting back to his life in Alaska after the Army, Doug worked some various jobs. And in 1982, he found out that his girlfriend at the time, Charlotte, had become pregnant. Now, a few months into her pregnancy, they got married in the beginning of 1983 and six months later, their son was born. 
it was a very short-lived marriage and Charlotte had turned around and filed for divorce by April of 1984, which that is definitely, uh, definitely not a very long marriage. And from the sounds and from here, it only gets worse. There was a over a year long custody battle between the two of them for their son and it everything got dredged up their behavior and apparently there was domestic violence on both sides she was claiming that he was a pot dealer and that he did cocaine of course not the uh the cocaine part he denied the selling of the pot but not the pot smoking so that's Kind of no surprise, but there were people that had testified on his behalf from the military. And so that kind of worked out in his favor. His, there were witnesses that claimed that he never smoked pot around his son, nor would he ever allow anyone to do that around his son, which good on him. You know, side note, I don't really give a shit. If you smoke pot, just don't do it around your kids. Who gives a shit if you smoke it? Everybody needs to check out of their head every once in a while. I get it. I'm not opposed to it. If you want to have that, go for it. Anyway. Now, on July 27th, 1985, after many, many, many continuances and witness character witnesses, psych evals, Superior Court Judge Beverly Cutler found Doug to be the more stable of the two parents, and he was awarded custody of their son. This, this did not sit well with Charlotte, and she was limited to 48 hours every other week, plus four hours on her son's birthday, and they had to alternate Christmas Eve and Christmas Day until he turned, until their son turned eight. Both parents were ordered to take parenting classes. So that should tell you something that that was a, a mess. And Charlotte's attorney did not take well to this. He actually called it cruel and filed a motion for a new trial and it actually was denied. Unfortunately, this this high of winning custody of his son did not last long. He was building, or I'm sorry, he was unloading steel at a round table pizza construction site, which is near Cars in Eagle River. And at this point, a crane's boom clipped a power line shooting 115,000 volts of electricity down wire down these guys down the wires into their bodies and there according to a report at the time there was a description of seeing the men's fingerprints etched into the beam and small drips of melted steel on the ground 
which is insane. I cannot imagine 115,000 volts of electricity. Ugh, that's crazy. This poor guy. He's just coming off winning custody of his son. And then, I don't know if you if it's karma or if it's just Murphy's Law or what. He winds up losing both of his legs from this electrical accident. Now, on top of that, Charlotte, who seems to be a real bitch, filed a motion in Superior Court to have the custody arrangement modified because Doug no longer had his legs, which is absolutely shitty of her to do, in my opinion, because, yes, there may have been a temporary custody issued because he was in the hospital recovering, but once he recovered and was good to go, why should she keep her son, take him away from his father? Now, a an RN named Laura Kronick, it says that her name is her last name is now Murray, took care of him while he was at Providence Alaska Medical Center. Now, there was a stream of visitors that went came to visit Doug because he was a really well-liked guy. But he wasn't an easy patient. He doesn't strike me as the type to just say, "Okay, doc, whatever you think is best." You know, he I can't see him wanting to be confined to a bed. He had talked about skydiving, learning to fly, and climbing Denali. And with as strong of a guy as he was, he wanted to get out of the hospital quickly and move on with his life. But you know, he was, he was angry. Of course, I would be angry if I lost my legs too. And his lifestyle's completely changed. So you, you can only imagine what was going through. Now, he didn't even have fingertips to be able to change Robbie's diapers. That, that That's horrible. You can't even change your own kid's diaper. And he wound up throwing a hospital, a birthday party for Robbie in the hospital bed when Robbie turned two. So this little boy has, like, the greatest dad. I just, I have to say that. Now, he was never a complainer. Even if he was in pain, he never would say much of anything. He would just kind of suck it up and deal with it. Which, to me, that's, that could be good or bad. You never know. And he, of course, was having the phantom pains from where his legs were, which is to be expected. Now, he never did lose that wry sense of humor that he had. And now to pull a line from one of the the article that I was researching from, And I quote, he thought it was hilarious when a flyer from a podiatrist came in the mail. He asked how much height he'd lost. He'd say, oh, about two feet. Which, okay, that is a dad joke right there. No doubt. I would have loved to have met Doug. Now, he was 
all about his son. He was constantly just trying to take care of him. He kind of neglected his own self. Being Robert's dad was number one priority to him. And I do believe that that's partially what made him fight and hang on and not let his injuries get the best of him. Now, Doug was discharged from the hospital in late September. His sister, Susan, who I mentioned earlier, had decided to quit her job in New Jersey and move up to Alaska to help look after Doug's son, Robbie, kind of while he got situated, which good for her. Now, being as this was a work-related accident, of course, there's a workers' comp settlement, and it's, of course, going to be a hefty amount. Now, he planned to use that money to open his own air taxi business, and this is where he dreamed of learning to fly and then hoping one day that him and Robbie would be able to explore all of Alaska. He just loved being outdoors. He loved his son, and he wanted to share his love with the outdoors with his son. Unfortunately, now, once he gets home in Sand Lake, he only winds up living for a little less than three more weeks. I'm sorry, four more weeks. If this guy has not had a shitty hand dealt to him already, it's only going to get worse. Luckily, the night that Doug was murdered, Robbie wasn't there. Charlotte had him, so it, and it was her weekend, so thank fuck he was not there, because I can only imagine the hell that that boy would have went through listening to that. Now... The night of October 19th, 1985, Doug, Susan, and a couple women friends, you know, nothing dating-wise, just platonic, had a late dinner. They had king crab legs and champagne. Or, I'm sorry, I take that back. One of the women was a woman that he was dating, who was a dancer, ironically enough, at the Great Alaskan Bush Company. Now, that's not too bad for a last meal. King crabs and champagne? Absolutely. Now, the other woman that was there was a, his friend Laurel. And to this day, she still cannot have her last name used because she was there. And she's terrified. And I don't blame her. If some one of my best friends got murdered randomly and the guy was never caught, I would be terrified to have my last name out too. And now the four of them went back to Doug's place to go, you know, hang out, watch some TV. And all of a sudden they're sitting there, they're watching TV. And then all of a sudden, there was a bang on the door. Now, and this part is what's baffling to me. There was a guy standing at the door. 
Now, as she goes to answer the door, and a hooded guy just burst into the room and took a shot. The first bullet missed, and it went through the wall and almost hit the woman next door. And this is where, you know, Doug being the honorable guy he is, rose to his knees, put his hands out and pleaded, hey, don't shoot. I understand what's going on. Don't shoot. We can work this out. That is fucking heartbreaking. To me, that says he may not have known who that was, but he also may have. It's it's really hard to tell. I think he was just trying to diffuse the situation. But... Ugh. Now, his sister remember remembers looking over at him and just seeing a little red spot on his forehead above his eye. And then she saw his eye come out of his skull and he fell backwards. That was it. The guy shot him in the head and put three more bullets in him. After the random shooter put four total bullets and Doug turned around and walked out like nothing happened. Like he came there to do a job and walked out. And I have to say, after researching more on this case, I think it was somebody that he was just a hired hitman. It, something happened. And it, to me, it says an insurance company didn't want to pay out the money. And you know, they, they had their own way of dealing with things. Because Doug hadn't received the settlement yet for the accident. Now, Susan basically couldn't do anything because she was just terrified and shocked. Now, once the few seconds of shock wore off, Laurel, Susan, and the other woman that had been dating Doug ran screaming into the back bedroom and Susan had grabbed the phone, called 911, and later realized, or, and they, I'm sorry, they hid in the closet. Now, when the cops got there, Susan was terrified to open the door. Terrified. And, you know, who can blame her? Some, the last time somebody knocked on the door, they just came in and shot your brother. It's insane. The 911 dispatcher had to promise her and convince her that it was the officers and not the killer. And frankly, I don't blame her. That's just... Ugh. As soon as she opened the door, there were guns pointed at her head. And rightfully so. The, the cops don't know what they're walking into. She put her hands up in the air and pointed at her brother. She couldn't even bring herself to look at him because she felt it was disrespectful. Now, police got all the women out of the house. They had questioned them separately, and this took all night. There was no break for them. And unfortunately, 7 a.m. the next day, Susan had to make the a horrible call to her mother telling her that her youngest son had just been killed and according to Susan her mother 
could never really deal with it. It broke her. And poor Susan still wakes up in the middle of the night haunted from this. And I really don't blame her, you know, and being as it was the mid-October, she has to relive this every year over and over and over every October it plays in her head. Now, John, who was a good friend of Doug's, threw in his treatments and helping him in the hospital, had gone back to the duplex with Susan to pack up Doug's things. And it just, the, the crime scene was just gruesome. There was blood everywhere, bullet holes, everything. And he was shot two or three times in the head or at least twice in the head and then twice in the chest, according to John. That, I'm sorry, that Doug had been shot twice in the head and twice in the chest, according to John. There... Now, according to this, Doug seemed to have an idea as to what the person that the, the shooter came in know what he was coming in for and that's why he had stated we can work this out I kind of have to wonder if it had to do with you know drugs or the bank settlement or anything but his mother Doug's mother sold a piece of property and put up $25,000 in reward money for leading to the arrest and indictment. Well, she still has that money. There's been nothing, absolutely nothing in the last 33 years, which is absolutely baffling to me that there has been no leads. There's nothing. Granted, if he just walked in, there wouldn't be any fingerprints or anything else there would be no dna so this is i don't know if this case will ever get solved it is still an open case so they can't really discuss the logistics of the case or anything particularly only known to the suspect and the witnesses and cold cases in alaska do get reviewed and evidence is collected and preserved so there's always a chance of having it solved, but I, for something tells me this will never be, never be solved. Now, after Doug passed away, Charlotte took Robert and moved out of state with her boyfriend and started a new life. And even going so far as to giving Robert her new husband's last name. Doug's family never was able to see Robbie again. It's asinine to think that the mother would cut off a loving family to her son. Now, Doug's mother had hired a private detective in 1988 and tracked down Charlotte and her husband on the opposite side of the country. And, you know, saying... Basically, she just wanted to make sure that he was okay. He was the only piece of Doug that she had left. Uh, and I don't blame her. Now, Susan was able to find him. 
And now Robert is a father through a father himself. And at one point was going through his own divorce. Susan stated in the first six conversations I had with him, all I did was cry because he sounded so much like my brother. I said, I don't think you know anything about me, but I'm your aunt. And I closed my eyes while talking to him, and it was like I'd be with my brother again. I was so grateful to have finally found him. Does that not just break your freaking heart? What kind of asshole just comes into a guy's house, shoots him, and turns around and leaves? There are so many freaking black holes you could go into with the amount of theories that there are. And... All Robert knew about his father was that he was a drug addict and sold drugs, and that's why he was killed. That's what his mother had told him, which could not be further from the truth. Smoking pot does not make you a drug addict. Not in the least. You know, and luckily, the only positive thing that came out of this was that Susan was able to reconnect with Robbie, which send him... Uh, send him pictures, his baby book, you know, tell him more about his father. And it kind of brought some peace to him knowing that his father wasn't a bad guy. And frankly, I think this is one of those cases that absolutely needs to be fucking solved. And that $25,000 reward for information leading to the arrest is still open. The case is still open. So I will put the link to the article that I got most of my information from in the show notes, but this case is just absolutely heartbreaking. I can't imagine what else could have happened or, you know, what could have happened with Robbie and what kind of life would he have had Doug obviously was a very loving and devoted father, and Robbie was robbed of that. Well, you know, what are you going to do? You just, it's frustrating, and it's disturbing, to say the least. So before I let you guys go today, I want you guys to go check out these two awesome ladies that do a podcast called yours and murder. I absolutely adore them. And Rachel singing is on point and so are her references. So go give them a listen. What do you want in a true crime podcast? Do you want well-researched material, but an easy to follow format? Do you want a bit of dark humor, but once sensitive topics handled, well, sensitively. Do you want hosts who are lactose intolerant, but eat macaroni and cheese anyway? Well, I think you might be looking for us. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca, and we're the hosts of the true crime podcast, Yours in Murder. And this isn't any old true crime podcast. I have a background in forensic science. And I have a background in journalism, so we're able to combine our knowledge and bring you interesting new perspectives on cases. Not that we're all serious. We have a bit of a dark sense of humor. Just a bit. I mean, we like morbid jokes and cat jokes. Lots of cat jokes. 
So if you're looking for something new and a bit out of the ordinary, check out Yours in Murder. You can find us on all of your favorite podcatchers as well as iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter or check out our website at yoursinmurder.net. We hope to see you soon and until next time, we are Yours in Murder. I will be back with you guys next week to start the Arizona cases. And as always, stay disturbed.